There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/people today Harry Stee, Harry Dick John Harry three one two three Ned's Richard two Henry's four five, and so it is in my romp through the history of the English monarchy that we come to Henry the fifth, uh, and I think Henry is one of those kings that a lot of people could identify. If you say, "Can you tell me three things about Henry the fifth?" They might have a pretty good chance. Pudding bowl haircut, Shakespeare play. Battle of Agincourt. And I, and I think actually one of the main reasons is that Shakespeare play. We forget just how much Shakespeare has contributed to our culture and how much his plays are central to it. And I think for many people, his history plays are probably their only connection with the past. I mean, that being said, people in England are obsessed with their history and are always calling upon it to justify various points of view. And Henry V is key to that, key to the, the great English myth, the great English story, the Battle of Agincourt, where the plucky little English army goes up against the might of the arrogant French knights. And consequently, views of Henry V change as views of our own sense of nationhood change and ideas of nationalism and patriotism and warfare change. So during the Second World War, Henry V was a great symbol of little England holding out against Hitler's Germany. And Churchill's government at the time partly funded the famous film that Laurence Olivier made and dedicated to the RAF. When Shakespeare wrote his play, Henry V was very much a hero because it was written at the time of Queen Elizabeth I, where our enemy 
well, it was, wasn't France, but Spain. And the mighty Spanish Armada was, I guess, the equivalent of the French knights in Henry V or the German bombers in World War II. And Shakespeare's play of Henry V has become quite contentious now in that you can't really put on a production that doesn't question the bellicose nature of the play and whether Henry is a hero or a villain. Now, obviously, when Shakespeare wrote it, Henry is pretty much a hero because it was written at the time of Queen Elizabeth where our enemy at that time was not France, but it is Spain and the might of Spain with the mighty Spanish Armada. So the play of Henry V has always been a, a rallying cry for England sticking up against foreign aggression. But if you put it on at a time when we are not under threat from foreign aggression, it becomes a play about the English being a threat to a foreign country. Henry V invaded France in an attempt to take over the French throne. And so when I came to look into Henry V's reign, you have to talk about the Battle of Agincourt and the Hundred Years' War. But I was interested to find out other interesting things about his reign, were other fascinating things going on that I should tell you about. And actually, there isn't. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing, because we've had this uh, discussion through the series of good king or bad king. Were they a good ruler or were they bad for the country? And actually, and I looked into it, I think Henry V did quite a lot of good for England. He was very hot on organisation and order and things being stable. And that is in his military career, as well as his career as ruler of the country. It was really important to him as a, as a leader of an army that it was well run, that it was well supplied that it was well equipped and as far as possible the men were looked after and he extended that attitude to the way he looked at running the country. He wanted things to be stable, not least so that he could raise money in order to attack France, but the knock-on effect was that the government finances and finances of the country were pretty well run and the main thing that he did in the English court was that he managed to not get embroiled in these incessant bouts of infighting where a powerful group of lords would unite and try and lord it up over other lords. And there had been this history of favouritism amongst the kings, often favouritism to people who were seen as outsiders or newcomers, which led to great resentment and infighting and periods of civil war. Henry was very careful not to promote favourites. That being said, he did have his core of advisers around him, and often these were people who he had fought alongside in the various wars that he had been involved in. But he worked very hard to try and repair the damages of the past. So some of these powerful families he, he brought back in from the cold, such as the Percy family, this extremely powerful northern family who had traditionally been this, this sort of bulwark against the Scots had protected Northern England and Henry V's father, Henry Bolingbroke, Henry IV, when he'd been on the throne, had ostracised the Percys by promoting the Nevilles, another powerful family in the north, and the Percys had eventually turned on him. So Henry did work hard to forgive the Percys and to restore their power in the north because they were very useful against the Scots. So Henry was big on getting things organised, well run. He had a strong sense of justice. He wanted a very efficient government. 
he wanted the finances to be properly regulated. He was unwilling to show favour. And the other thing that I think was important was that he carried on this promotion of English. He read and wrote in English. He got many books translated into English. And he was keen to carry on promoting this idea of Englishness to the ordinary people of his country. And you can see a strong thread of this in the Shakespeare play. It's very much about we English. And it's a way of unifying and uniting the country, not only to make it easier to rule and to be less strife for people, but also with this idea of patriotism and nationalism as a way of promoting his renewal of the war against France. It's very interesting looking at history, the way that we view Henry V has changed so much over the years. And, and I think it's the same with many kings. And, and Henry, who was tall, he was well over six foot, he's very much in the mould of Edward I and uh, King Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, in the sense that they were these tall, manly, glorious warrior kings in their day and through a large part of history. But now we're not so sure about them and certainly this is not the sort of king we would want in contemporary Britain. And even today you could read three different history books about Henry V and you would probably get a different picture of the man from each of them and a different view on him. And if you want to find out more about Henry, I would slightly warn you against going to Wikipedia because the Wikipedia entry on Henry seems to have been nobbled by someone. It looks like a precocious 15-year-old has pasted in parts of a school essay. Wanting to claim the French throne for himself, Henry resumed the war against France in 1415 and that same conducting a campaign to seize the French crown. This will end in one of England's most successful and glorious... And there's one of those little... Um, notes in brackets from Wikipedia there that says weasel words. This will end in one of England's most successful and glorious military campaigns during the whole conflict and would result in one of the most decisive victories for English army during this time period. So that's the quality of the Wikipedia entry on, on Henry. But uh, we, we can learn some basic facts and figures from there. He was born in 1386. He died in 1422. He was only 36 years old. He was a military man and sadly he went the way of most of our other great military monarchs. He died of one of the soldier's illnesses, slightly disputed. It's always been referred to as dysentery, but it seemed to have been quite a long lingering death which isn't the course that dysentery normally takes. But it was some form of loss of bodily fluids, one way or another. He came to the throne in 1413, so he only ruled for nine years, but in that time he made his mark on history. Uh, as I say, I, I feel that he was a pretty good all-round king, was certainly well-liked by the ordinary people of England and the aristocracy. He went to Oxford University, where he was very interested in the arts and music, so he was a reasonably cultured man. He was also a very pious man, which means that in the histories of the time, which were written by religious clerics and clerks, they were very much pro-Henry. So he wasn't just this sort of numbskull warrior king. He was actually born in Monmouth Castle in Wales. He was born in the chamber above the gatehouse, and so at the time he was known as Henry of Monmouth. We looked in the last episode at how people at the time 
didn't have surnames, but they would be called after wherever they were born. So he was Henry of Monmouth. His father was Henry Bolingbroke, having been born at Bolingbroke Castle. And his grandfather was John of Gaunt, uh, because he was born in Ghent. So back to Henry. In his early years, he spent a lot of time working for his dad, Henry Bolingbroke, who had usurped the throne from Richard II, taken it for himself, and so things were very shaky, and he was constantly at war with these various powerful families in the kingdom. And Prince Henry, Prince Hal, Henry V, Henry of Monmouth, uh, was very involved in these military campaigns from a young age. First of all, in Wales, uh, we saw in the last episode how there was this big nationalistic independence movement in Wales led by Owen Glendower, this great Welsh hero who rose up against the English. So Henry Bolingbroke had to send in armies under the command of Henry Hotspur Percy. And in Shakespeare's plays, Hotspur is made to be the same age as young Prince Hal. In fact, he was about 20 years older than him. And in the Welsh campaign, Henry very much served under Hotspur and admired him and learnt a lot from him and they were good friends. The Welsh campaign went on for a few years, eventually fizzling out in about 1410 after Owen Glendower disappeared and was presumed dead. But Hotspur went on to lead this uprising of his family and various allies against Henry Bolingbroke, at which point young Prince Hal was on the opposing side to Hotspur. And when he was only 16, he was involved in the Battle of Shrewsbury, where the royal forces met the Percy forces near Shrewsbury. And the royal forces only just won the day, mainly because Hotspur was killed by an arrow, which took the heart out of his army's fight. But Henry, Henry V, young Prince Hal as he was at the time, was also hit by an arrow. And he was hit in the face. It went into his head just to the left of his nose and went right through his head and embedded itself in the back of his skull. And miraculously, it didn't kill him. It didn't hit anything vital. It didn't hit his spinal cord. It didn't hit any part of his brain. It went into the nasal cavity, as I say, and stuck in the back of his head. And, and it must have been unimaginably painful, debilitating, but he carried on fighting with this arrow sticking out of his head because he didn't want to dishearten his troops. And so he became a symbol of defiance and bravery and Percy became a symbol of being dead, I suppose. And so they tried to get this arrow out of Henry's head. The shaft came out, but the head, the bodkin, was left impaled in the back of his skull and they couldn't get to it, they couldn't get it out. And it stayed in there for some time. It's various surgeons tried to retrieve it without much success, at which point they decided they needed to get hold of John Bradmore, who had been the royal physician. But at the time he was in prison for counterfeiting coins, but he was very quickly given a royal pardon, summoned back to court, and he's set to working out how to save Henry and get this arrow out of his head. And he actually invented his own device. He wrote a book about it. And you can see his original drawings for this piece of equipment. But the first thing he had to do was to fully open the wound so he could get to the arrowhead. And he did this by slowly inserting these cloth-covered wedges. And they were covered in honey, which is an antiseptic. 
and they were slowly driven into his head to open up the wound, which was obviously trying to close. And over the course of a couple of days, he drove these wedges further and further into Henry's head. And this was all done, obviously, without any anaesthetic. There were various opioids that could be used and obviously strong drink. I mean, the pain of it must be extraordinary. You know, if you've ever had a splinter, you know how painful that is, just this tiny little splinter of wood. But imagine having an entire arrowhead embedded in the back of your skull. So finally he puts in these two wedges, one on either side, and manages to sort of prise them apart so that he can see the arrowhead there, at which point he puts in his special device, which in the middle of which there's a screwing mechanism that screws into the socket where the shaft was, and there are these two other little sort of handles that fix to the, the rear-facing points of the arrowhead, and he manages to take hold of it, and with a fair amount of brute force and rocking it backwards and forwards, he eventually dislodges it and pulls it out, washes the wound out with alcohol, in this case wine, sews it up, and amazingly, Henry survives. Most people probably would have succumbed to some form of infection, but uh, he was incredibly lucky that he didn't, and the arrow was removed. He must have been very badly scarred. Um, this was not mentioned at the time, perhaps it's not done to mention the king's disfigured face. And interestingly, if you look at portraits of Henry, they're nearly always fully profile, which was not usual at the time. Normally you would have expected three quarters, and perhaps that was to not show the wound on the other side. Who knows? But anyway, he survived. He must have been one tough bugger, and he went on to greater glory. So Henry's domestic reign was fairly stable and ordinary and dull, which if you were an ordinary person in England, a merchant or a yeoman tried to go about their daily business, you would have applauded to the high heavens. But in terms of sort of interesting, colourful history, there wasn't a lot going on back home of any great note. In fact, the really interesting stuff was going on in France. The ruler of France at this time was King Charles VI, who officially was known as Charles the Beloved, but everyone called him Charles the Mad, mainly because he was, well, he was mad. Madness is a term we're not encouraged to really use these days. We would look at a specific illness or damage to the brain or whatever as, as causing madness, but back then, madness was madness. So we're not quite sure what complaint... Charles VI was suffering from to make him behave the way he did and diagnosing somebody 600 years later is nigh on impossible. So yes, he, he was essentially mad. This first showed itself in a period where he seemed to get very sort of manic and paranoid. There'd been an assassination attempt on one of his friends at court and he was leading a small a military force to Brittany in order to punish Pierre de Crown, who was the alleged would-be assassin. And he seems to have been incredibly fired up about this. We've got to do it. Come on, we've got to go it. We've got to go there. And he kept pushing his men onwards in this increasing frenzy. And about halfway there, a leper appeared in their path and warned Charles to be careful that there was a threat on his life. And this, this increased his paranoia even more. And then when one of his pages dropped a lance, it hit one of the soldiers on his head, which gave a mighty clang, at which point King Charles started shouting, they're onto us, quick, fight back. And he started attacking his own men. And he sort of 
came round a couple of days later with no real memory of this, but he discovered that he had killed a few people. Because obviously it's not done if the king starts attacking you. You can defend yourself, but you can't really fight back. So several men were killed, including a knight known as the Bastard of Polignac. So that was quite a colourful incident. But things got worse after that. There were periods where he couldn't remember who he was, couldn't remember his own name, he couldn't recognise his wife. After she visited him in his chambers, he told his servants that, whoever that woman was, can you make sure she doesn't get back in here? He ran around the household screaming and howling like a wolf. Uh, it, it, it's quite a lot of similarities, actually, with our own King George III, who famously suffered from some form of madness. But Charles VI went way further than George III. He claimed he was St George at one point in his life, and it got so bad he's running around crazily that the household staff walled up some of the doors. And no less an authority than Pope Pius II wrote that Charles came to believe that he was made of glass. And he tried to protect himself in several ways so that he wouldn't get broken. He, he made people stay away from him. And he had iron rods sewn into his clothing so that if they did accidentally bump into him, he wouldn't shatter. So in some ways you could say he was, yes, he was entertainingly mad. And this led to great instability in the French court and uh, a weakness in the French hold on power. And Charles's younger brother, Louis d'Orléans, Louis of Orléans reckoned he should take over. So there was one of these classic dynastic feuds going on. But there was also this big, powerful power block in Burgundy, which is in sort of northeastern France, where a guy called John the Fearless was in charge. And that led to a civil war in France between Louis and John the Fearless, who were both really angling for the French throne. And that was known as the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War, which you can remember as brandy versus wine. So this was all going on in France. Louis was not particularly popular with the people of France or at the French court. He was a bit of a womanizer. There were rumours that he was having an affair with Charles's wife, Louis's sister-in-law. And he became particularly unpopular after an event known as the Bal des Ardons, the Ball of the Burning Men. Perhaps the origins of the Burning Man festival. But it was a masked ball that was held at court. And the king and various other noblemen decided to put on this show where they dressed up as wild men and started dancing around. And they had dressed themselves in these costumes. They'd been stitched into this linen cloth that was soaked in some sort of wax or resiny, sticky substance. So they could stick fuzzy bits of hessian to it to look like properly wild men. And they were hilariously dancing around and entertaining the court. And the king had asked that nobody have any naked flames close to them and that they remove some of these braziers and torches on the walls that could have caused a bit of a problem. But then Charles's younger brother, Louis of Orléans, turns up late, can't see what's happening, so grabs a lighted torch and goes closer to see what's going on and sets the dancers on fire, which must have made for a considerably more entertaining show, except that four of these men died. Uh, luckily, Charles was all right. A noblewoman smothered him in her skirts and put him out. Another burning nobleman jumped into a barrel of wine, but it was still a bit of a disaster. 
Louis, not well liked for setting fire to these people at court, including the king. So this all adds to these problems in France. You've got three people who are vying for the throne. You've got Charles's younger brother, Louis. You've got John the Fearless of Burgundy. And you've also got Charles's son, the heir to the throne. So this is all going on in France. And this is why when he takes the throne, Henry thinks, OK, there's an opportunity here. It's an opportunity to go back into France and restart the Hundred Years' War. Obviously not called that at the time. He can capitalise on the chaos and throw his own hat into the ring. But let's just backtrack a bit, because so far in our, in our narrative, Henry isn't on the throne yet. So after the Battle of Shrewsbury, young Prince Henry is a big hero. He's the big man of the day. He defeated this rebellious army. And for a while, his father, Henry Bolingbroke, Henry IV, brings him into court. And Henry seems to really enjoy the process of politics and learning about it and learning the best way to govern a country to the extent that his father grows a little bit suspicious of him and thinks he might be trying to take over, particularly as Henry Bolingbroke, Henry IV, in his later years, did become very sick and infirm and feeble. In Shakespeare's play, Hal is imagined as this rebellious teenager who doesn't want anything to do with his father or his father's court. He just wants to hang out with his mates down the pub, getting pissed and getting involved in petty crime with this... Uh, reprobate, fat, old, drunken knight, Sir John Falstaff, until Prince Hal eventually sees the error of his ways and grows up. It's a classic sort of rebellious teenager growing up and taking on responsibility, apologises to his father and joins the court. And then after his father dies, becomes Henry V and gains full glory at the Battle of Agincourt. But in actual fact, the reality seems to have been the opposite, that he wanted to be at court, he wanted to be helping his father, but his father ostracised him, pushed him out, essentially exiled him within his own country and made sure he had nothing to do with court affairs. But as Henry IV got older and sicker and weaker, he did relent and Henry did return to court. And actually, by the time of his father's death, Henry was pretty much already ruling the country. And so when he comes to the throne, he has in place around him the court that he wants. And as I said before, he rules pretty effectively. So I mentioned Sir John Falstaff, who was not a real person. Although interestingly, in early manuscripts of the Henry plays, Sir John Falstaff is called Sir John Oldcastle, who was a real person. But John Oldcastle was a very interesting figure. He had been a friend of Henry in his younger days and something of a mentor. They had fought alongside each other. So he was a good friend of Henry. He was older than him. But Oldcastle had got very involved in the Lollard movement. And we've looked at this before, and I think it's worth just looking at the Lollards in a little bit more detail, because they were fascinating. They were the precursors of the sort of Protestant movement, which came to a full head with the Reformation under Henry VIII. And in fact, a lot of their ideas are very modern. It was a religious movement, but you can't really separate at this time religion from politics because the bishops and the archbishops were very powerful men and they were very wealthy men. They owned a lot of land from which they made a very big income and 
you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury wouldn't be appointed because this person was the most pious person around, but it was the person that the king needed in that position to back them up in power and politics. And the Lollards are saying, this is wrong. The church shouldn't have this wealth. They shouldn't have this temporal power. So any attack on the church at this time is also an attack on the monarchy, on the ruling classes. And Lollardism grew up alongside the Peasants' Revolt. It grew out of the great social changes that happened on the back of the Black Death in Edward III's reign, where suddenly people lower down the ladder found themselves having access to more wealth and power because there were estates that were left empty with people having died, that workers were in short supply and therefore could ask for more money. And alongside this, there was an anti-clerical movement where they said, well, you know, the church got rich on our backs, but they didn't save us from the plague. And they can't be that religious if they also died in such great numbers. So these things all grew up together. And the Lollards published these 12 conclusions, which are really interesting. And as I say, you have a very modern feel about them. And amongst these 12 pronouncements that they've made, most of them are about the English church. And they're saying that they have become too much involved in day-to-day -day politics, led by the bad example of the Church of Rome, that priests are getting wealthy. And they, they said they should abandon the practice of clerical celibacy because it encouraged sodomy amongst the clergy. So there's a lot of stuff sort of anti the Church of Rome, anti-Catholicism all the idolatry, the rituals, exorcisms, pilgrimages. They're anti all of that stuff. They say, what has that got to do with real Christianity? Also, why are we promoting these men to great wealth and power? They say confession should be abolished because only God has the power to forgive sins. They also say that Christians should be pacifist. They should refrain from battle. They shouldn't be involved in the Crusades. That is completely unchristian. And then inevitably, when any group of men, and they, essentially the leaders of the Lollards were men, get together and make religious pronouncements, they'll, they'll say something about women. And in this case, they were very anti-abortion. And also, because there's a strong Puritan streak through this, they do also then end up saying people shouldn't devote so much time to making beautiful things, objects of art and craft. You should simplify their lives and renew their devotion to godliness. And so we've seen under Henry IV that these new laws were brought in anti-heretical. This law saying that the punishment for heretics, particularly Lollards, was this new idea of burning them at the stake. And on the back of the growing power of the Lollards, Henry V sort of got behind this anti-Lollard movement and passed several laws. There was a parliament in Leicester, which I've seen referred to in some places as a law and order parliament, because parliaments were named back in the day. But I've also seen it referred to elsewhere as the fire and faggot parliament, which maybe is why in some cases it's called the law and order parliament in order to not appear to be using inappropriate language. But the faggot in this case is a bundle of sticks, which was what they would use to set light to, to burn heretics. And one of the interesting laws that is passed here is basically saying that anybody who tries to read the scriptures in English, which was one of the ideas that came from the founder of the Lollard movement, John Wycliffe, was to put religion into the hands of the people. This becomes this terrible heretical crime you can see that it is the ruling classes wanting to keep 
religion and the control of the people through religion entirely in the hands of the priesthood, who can pick and choose any bits of the Bible they need to quote in order to put the ordinary people down when needed. And if they had access to being able to read the Bible themselves, they could see that, oh, actually, there's a, there's a lot more to this than, than we've been told. And that, oh, you know, Jesus Christ does seem to have preached that ordinary people have got a better chance of getting into heaven than the rich. And there's nothing in the New Testament about the power that should be given to the priests. So the Lollard movement is quite heavily suppressed. But Henry's old friend, Sir John Oldcastle, is a big supporter. And even though Henry begs him to repent, he won't. And Oldcastle is arrested. Henry manages to stop him from being instantly burned and says, look, I'll give you time to, to rethink this. All you have to do is renounce your beliefs. And he puts him in the Tower of London. Oldcastle manages to escape and leads a sort of Lollard uprising against the king. And they secretly arrange to meet in St Giles Fields, which is just outside the city of London. Lollards from all around the country. And I think Oldcastle must have been hoping this would be a repeat of the Peasants' Revolt, where substantial numbers of, of people from Kent and Essex did rise up against the ruling powers. They didn't quite get the turnout they wanted. Henry had been tipped off. He sent a force to round up the rebels, most of whom were then executed. Oldcastle managed to get away, but he was caught later on and brought back and eventually was burnt at the stake. Henry had to set fire to his old friend in order, as he saw it, to maintain power. This was one of only two sort of major threats on Henry's reign. He managed to avoid these uprisings and civil wars. Maybe if he'd lived longer, it would have gone the way of all the others. As he got weaker later on, people would have vied to take his place. But there were only these two uprisings, the Lollard one. And the second one was on the eve of Henry setting out to invade France. Uh, and indeed, there were suspicions that it might have been financed by the French, where a group of noblemen who were loyal to the Earl of Mortimer, who was one of the pretenders to the throne, rose up in support of him. He himself had nothing to do with it and said, look, look, I'm sorry, this is not my doing. I didn't ask them to do this. That revolt was very quickly put down, which left Henry free to invade France. He had managed by having a stable government, by creating peace with Wales, by restoring the Percys in the north, which meant that he was safe from Scotland. He was in a position to renew the war against France. As we've seen before, the French were in disarray. Henry thought he might be able to ally with the Duke of Burgundy against France, but John the Fearless kind of played both sides against the other. He would talk to the king and say, look, I'm on your side. And then he'd have secret meetings with Henry and say, yeah, yeah, I'm on your side. He was a slippery character. He openly murdered the king's brother, Louis, who we've seen before, setting fire to the king. He had him killed on the streets of Paris and boasted about it. Unfortunately, he himself was murdered later on at a meeting that had been called by some other French noblemen. So it didn't go well for him in the end. But Henry V is in a position to invade France, claiming that the French throne should be his through the female line of inheritance. If you remember, this had been Edward III's argument for launching the Hundred Years' War in the first place. His mother, Isabella, Edward II's wife, was the sister of the French king, King Charles IV, who, when he died, had no sons or brothers. 
So Isabella had claimed the throne of France for her son, Edward III, as he was the closest by blood to King Charles. But the French nobility rapidly brought in a law to say that succession could only be passed down the male line. So the throne was given to Charles's cousin, Philip. But ever since this point, there had been a very similar jostling for position at the French court as there had been at the English. Uh, he manages to get well-funded. The people are on his side. The Welsh are even on his side. He seems to have pardoned a lot of the Welsh involved in the rebellion. Uh, he did charge them for their pardons. So uh, that did swell his coffers. But he did take a substantial number of Welsh bowmen with him to France. And he also gets private donors, people who are lending him money, including the famous Dick Whittington of pantomime fame, who was a real character. He was an extremely wealthy merchant and mayor of London. So Henry takes over this huge fleet, 1,500 ships. It's like a sort of reverse Dunkirk. These aren't all warships. They're mostly just vessels that he's commandeered, merchant ships or whatever, to transport these men. It's also echoes of D-Day landing in that he's taking this huge army with over 10,000 fighting men into France and they land near this major port at the mouth of the River Seine. There's a fortified town there called Harfleur. He lands near there, lays siege to Harfleur and he's taken with him these 12 huge cannons, these 12 great guns. Before Henry went, he had said to the French, look, I am laying claim to the throne. Do you want to deal with me in instead of attacking you, instead of attacking Paris, if you would be willing to give me back all the lands in France that we used to own, such as Normandy, which hadn't been in English hands for hundreds of years, Brittany, Aquitaine, etc., then I will hold off, I won't invade. The heir apparent in France, who was essentially ruling the country because Charles was mad, so this is the Dauphin. He had rather derisively offered to send Henry some tennis balls for Henry and his lords to play with and some soft pillows to sleep on to help him grow to manly strength. <laughs> Henry doesn't find this joke very funny. And when he starts firing his 12 great cannons at the walls of Harfleur, he says that the tennis balls have changed into hard and great gunstones for the dolphin to play with. Cannons had completely changed the nature of siege warfare. Before the arrival of gunpowder, all you could do was sling rocks at a castle with these huge catapults called trebuchet, and he had to hope that you hit the top of a wall or a tower, so it could take months and months to break your way in. But once you've got cannons that can fire horizontally, they can just keep hammering away at one spot in the lower wall until the whole wall collapses. So castles are rapidly becoming redundant. Henry also undermines the walls with tunnels, which he packs with gunpowder. Even so, it took him a month to get into Harfleur, at which point they surrendered. Unfortunately, this time for Henry, disease had been rife in the English camp. His army is greatly depleted and he has to send a large number of them back home to England. He also has to use another large number of them to actually defend Harfleur. So he's left with this 
small army. And he's advised to go back to England himself at that point, to sail back, be fairly easy. But no, he wants to rub the French noses in it. He wants to parade through France and follow the route that Edward III's army took on the way to the Battle of Cressy. And he sets off with a small force to Calais, which is further northeast along the French coast. Calais still being the only English-held city in France, but he goes through the French countryside and he soon realises that this much, much larger French army is following him, trying to catch up, trying to trap him so that they can basically wipe him out. He presses on, he gets to the River Somme. This is the same landscape that the appalling trench warfare of the First World War was fought across. For the most part, it's wide and open and flat, perfect for a pitched battle. The French army eventually catch up with him. And as they see it, they have him trapped. There's this stretch of land hemmed in by dense woodland on either side so the French can concentrate their attack. Henry's at one end, the French at the other end. The French vastly outnumber them and they have their elite fighting force, these French knights. And on the night before the battle, apparently the French knights are all laying wagers with each other on how many English noblemen they can kill or capture and they're feasting and carousing and singing, whereas it's complete silence in the English camp as this demoralised force is there sleeping in the open and getting rained on. It rains heavily overnight and it's reported that Henry goes amongst his men, encouraging them, building up their hopes, trying to instil this sort of patriotism in them, which we see in the play of Henry V. And that does seem to have been based on the sort of things that Henry said to his men that night. In the morning, this field is completely waterlogged and very muddy. But the French, in their arrogance, think, OK, all we've got to do is just send in wave after wave of our cavalry and we will just overrun and trample the English into the mud. But it is the French who are trampled into the mud. Their horses can't get up much speed. They flounder, they get stuck. And the English bowmen, which is the vast majority of the English army, just rain these arrows down at them. These white-tipped arrows falling like snow. And the first rank of cavalrymen are killed, stuck in the mud. The second rank can't get past and they're all trampling each other and falling over and still these arrows are coming. The knights are completely wiped out. The English archers run out of arrows, but they, they then attack with these short swords and knives, killing any Frenchman they can get their hands on who are stuck in the mud. And then a couple of things happen. Henry has brought with him this wagon train, which contains all the royal wealth, his crown, money to pay the troops, and it is behind his lines. Now, whilst the French army can't get round him, the local French people can, and they all get together and attack the wagon train and rob it, which causes great unease amongst the English army. Henry can't spare men to go back and save the wagon train. He then receives reports that there is a counterattack, that there is a fresh army about to arrive. In actual fact, this army never does arrive, but he panics. By this point, his men have captured quite a lot of French knights. Nobody knows the exact number, uh, but they're all still in their armour. <clears throat> Some of them are still armed. There's a lot of fallen weaponry around. Henry is not sure what to do. He can't afford to keep his men there to guard these French soldiers 
because he'll need them for the fight against this incoming army. So he makes a decision which is military very sound, but perhaps on a humane level not so sound, and he orders his men to kill all these French knights. And this is a big black mark against him as far as the French are concerned. A, he hasn't fought in a chivalrous manner by basically firing arrows at the French, and B, he's killed captured troops. Two things you're not really supposed to do. But it does mean that Henry wins the battle. It's a triumph for him. He's able to press on to Calais, returns to England to great celebrations, uh, at which point he carries on negotiating with the French, threatening to come back, and he carries on diplomatic dealings. And eventually, because of the disruption in France, he manages to force through a deal whereby he is accepted as the rightful heir to the French throne after Charles dies. He is also going to marry Charles's daughter, Catherine, to cement this relationship, and he will obviously be given back his lands in France. So this treaty is signed, a treaty of Troyes, and he does marry the daughter of the French king, takes her back to England, where she is well accepted. There's a big coronation ceremony, and Henry has left his younger brother Thomas, Duke of Clarence, in France to keep control of things. But it's not quite as simple as that. It never is. Even though this treaty has been signed, nobody in France really has any great intentions of sticking to it. These various civil wars carry on, Burgundians causing trouble, the Dauphin with his own faction, Charles with his own faction, the Normans themselves not wanting to be taken over by Henry again. There is more fighting. Thomas is killed, Henry's brother is killed. Henry realises the only way he can keep power in France is to be there himself. So he goes back again with another army, starts campaigning in northern France, besieging and then sacking these various powerful cities, including Rouen, where again there's another black mark against the English. During the siege, the people of Rouen can't feed their own people, so they force many of the women and children to leave the city. They push them out through the gate, expecting that Henry will do the chivalrous thing and look after them. But Henry wants nothing to do with them, and they're left to kind of die in the ditches. It's hard to know who's most at fault here. The French for kicking them out, or the English for not looking after them, but um, it doesn't look good for either side. So this builds up a lot of resentment for the French against Henry and against the English army. And as we'll see with the development of the Hundred Years' War after this, the English are demonised by the French. But Henry is campaigning again in France, back in England. His wife Catherine gives birth to a little boy, also called Henry. But Henry V never gets to see his son. As I said at the beginning, he gets a soldier's disease. Let's call it dysentery. It's a long, slow death. But he eventually dies. Um, he was heir to the French throne. He never got to sit on the French throne because mad King Charles VI outlives him by a few months. But when Charles VI does die, amazingly, this little child back in England, Henry Jr., is proclaimed King of England and King of France. And as we shall see, as usual, I end with the same line, that doesn't go particularly well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I'm delighted to have back as my special guest today... Rory Cox, lecturer in medieval history at University of St. Andrews, who was on before talking about King Edward II, uh, back today to talk about Henry V. And Rory is a specialist in English medieval history and the history of war. And I believe, Rory, you, you have a book out, September 23, called Origins of the Just War. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Hi, Charlie. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. And yes, the book is out in September. It's all about trying to trace the very earliest uh, expressions and discussions and justifications of war in terms of ethical justifications and laws about restraint or regulating combat. And as you say, I'm, I'm really interested in the history of war, really, you know, throughout history, sort of going back before the Middle Ages and, and after it as well. And so this goes back to the very earliest evidence we have in ancient Egypt, uh, in ancient Hatti, which is an Anatolian civilization in, in the second millennium BCE, and in the ancient Israelites, and a little bit about Assyria and Babylon as well. And so it's trying to sort of trace the earliest expressions of justifications of war, justifications of violence, uh, things like a divine authority and just cause and any, anything that's trying to regulate the, uh, the conduct of violence, basically. Yeah, I've always found it fascinating that, you know, you have a sort of set of rules of things you can and can't do in a war. And it, and it sort of it can be fairly arbitrary and, and changes to fit the times. Absolutely. You know, we all, arguably, we all like to think of ourselves as good people. And, we're, and, and certainly in the ancient world and, and in the Middle Ages as well, of course, and, and later, people are also very concerned about what will happen to them in the afterlife. And so they want to know that if they're killing people, that they're not going to get into trouble for that, whether during their lives or after they die. And of course, they also have to, you know, think that putting their own lives at risk is actually worth it. This is very germane to the story of Henry V, the idea of the just war, of justifying the war. Because the thing that most people know about Henry V is obviously his campaigns in France and the Battle of, of Agincourt, which for huge swathes of English history has been viewed as a great and marvellous thing, but now is viewed very differently. Yeah, I always think of Henry V as the second most famous Henry, you know, after after Henry VIII. <laughs> <laughs> Henry VIII usually hogs the headlines. Yeah, he takes um, up a lot of space. <laughs> that's right, physically and conceptually. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, and, and Henry V, of course, is inextricably linked with his military endeavours and the great victory at the Battle of Agincourt in, in 1415. And we have pretty good evidence at the time that he was concerned about the potential justice of, of his wars in France, and he was concerned about pressing his own claims or what he believed to be his, his rights and his claims in France. 
Uh, that's certainly how Shakespeare presents it in his play of Henry V. There's a very long scene where he's getting advice from the Archbishop of Canterbury and from his barons. And then we have the scene with the Dauphin's representative. And there is this consideration of the justice and legality and the ethics of, of waging war. And the character of Henry in that play is, is very aware that war is, is a terrible thing and, and will result in deaths and, and you know, widows and orphans. And again, you know, on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, he has this discussion with his troops about whether it's a just or an unjust cause and whose responsibility that is, you know, whether the troops bear responsibility for that themselves and whether they might go to heaven or hell or whether it's all on the head of the king. And then he has this kind of monologue where he kind of doubts whether he, he's doing the right thing <laughs> or not. So, you know, so this idea of justice and this, I think, it, you know, it very much keys into the the sense of Henry being pious as well. And this is the, another yeah. one of the sort of the hallmarks of his reign, I suppose, is that not only is he a military leader, he is a, a pious and, and quite a serious king as well. But it, but he, he still does go ahead with it. And the, the Shakespeare's play is pretty triumphalist. Yeah, absolutely. He goes ahead with it. And, you know, we can we can interpret his, his motivations in, in two ways, I suppose. The uh, generous interpretation is that as a king of England, you know, as a, a, a relation to Edward III particularly, although not the closest relation as, uh, as the Southampton plot revealed, as perhaps we can get into that later, but, you know, as a relation uh, of, the, of this line of English kings, he had a right to the French throne, uh, more so than, than the Valois kings of France, that, that they, there was a, a better lineage there to the, to the Capetians. So, right, so this was the confusion after Charles IV died and left no male heirs in the Capetian line, his family being the Capetians. And the throne passed to a different family, the Valois, under Charles's cousin Philip. And Henry had direct Capetian blood through his mother and so had legitimate claims? That he had a right to his lands in, in the south and, and in the north um, and that he felt that he had been shortchanged, not only from the Treaty of Bretigny, which goes all the way back to 1360 and the terms of which were never really uh, fulfilled, but also 1413 or, and 1410. There were, there were other agreements with the French that never really materialised. Do you think his main impetus was to get back the lands that had previously been held by England or the Normans rather than thinking he might try and take over the whole of France? Yeah, so that was the generous interpretation. The, the cynical interpretation was that it was all ambition and ego and securing his own throne. Yeah. And actually the kind of the grand strategy of it all, whether that's claiming France as a kingdom, whether that's realizing the unfulfilled treaties, previous treaties, that was really by the by. And his main concern was actually war itself. Because we have to remember that he's the son of an, of, of an usurper, right? And the, the, yes. When he takes his throne, um, the, the Lancastrian dynasty is, is not particularly kind of guaranteed in any way. And, you know, Henry IV, his father, took the throne on the promise of, you know, uh, good government, where Richard II mm. had failed. And by and large, he hadn't really achieved that. He had financial weaknesses. He didn't really have any particular military successes. He was, of course, facing a, a rebellion in, in Wales with Owen Glendur, where, mm. where the young Henry was very much involved. 
so, you know, his father, Henry IV, didn't really deliver. And so there was a pressure on Henry V to actually provide leadership um, and to unite his baronage. And, and one very good way of uniting uh, his, his nobility was to offer them the potential of massive profits in, in waging war. And war has always been a kind of a unifying factor. So, you know, if you were taking a very cynical line, you could just see it as, mm. well, it's better to have these people fighting in France than to have them fighting potentially each other and against me. It's his Falklands moment. Yeah. But it, it was still a huge risk. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that he would have any success at all, was it? It's debated and, it, and it's difficult to decide. The extent to which in 1415, when he launched the Agincourt campaign, whether he thought of that really as just a, a raid, they, they, they call these campaigns a chevauchet, mm. literally means the ride, kind of very, very mobile, <laughs> quick, just devastating campaign, really aimed at violence and plunder, versus his later campaigns beginning in 1417, where he actually seems set on conquest, where he right. slowly is you know, taking over Normandy, garrisoning cities and fortresses. Um, and that, that seems to be a very different campaign to his earlier campaign. So it was a, a sort of provocation, because after he takes Harfleur, which wasn't easy, no. he then does this march across country to Calais in order to get back to England when he could have just jumped on a ship and taken everyone home. So was that just him riding through France saying, you know, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough? Yeah, and that was against the advice of his war council as well. Mm. You know, so as you say, not only had Harfleur taken a lot longer to uh, to fall than they had hoped, it took around six weeks. The English army had also been absolutely devastated by di dysentery, yeah. which is, was to come back to haunt Henry himself. The most ignoble way to, to end a military career, but most common as well. Yeah, um, yeah so you know, he'd lost over 25% of his army at Harfleur through disease. Mm. And so the march to Calais was not recommended by his war council. They thought it would be better to just garrison Harfleur and go back to England. Yeah. I think Henry realized that he needed to provide his magnates with a bit more than that, that he had promised them profit. And, you know, in many ways, it was a very ill-advised campaign. But Henry, uh, you know, up until the fact that he, he caught dysentery and died young, you know, up, you know, one of the, 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 the best things he does in his whole reign is, or, or continues to do, is that he's lucky. And, and Agincourt, in many ways, he was lucky. And if he had lost that battle, then the entire campaign would be thought of, you know, very, very differently as yeah. a, basically a bit of a disaster. But he is lucky enough to win the Battle of Agincourt against the odds. Uh, and of course, you know, history thinks of it in, in a very different way. Was he a great military tactician? I mean, how much was it luck and how much was it skill? And why, just why on earth hadn't the French learnt lessons from Cressy? <laughs> well, they had to a certain extent. Agincourt, they did dismount. You know, most of the French army was on foot at Agincourt rather than on horse. It was only okay. about a third of the army that was actually um, on horse. Uh, they, you know, most of their heavy cavalry dismounted. Um, they even cut down their lances and things like that as they, as they advanced across the field. But they hadn't learned the lesson in terms of just how devastating the English war bow could be. Yes, he was a brilliant military campaigner. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. He, right. was a, he was a very able general. He was a serious man. He 
carried, you know, copies of, of Vegetius and other military manuals around with him. He was clearly interested in strategy and tactics. And actually, more than anything, like his forebears, um, particularly Edward III and Edward I, he was also interested in logistics, that he, he, he could not only fight a battle, but he could prepare a campaign. And that really was so, so important. And so, yes, yeah, so I don't think we should take anything away from his military skill. He clearly was extremely talented and brave uh, and experienced. You know, he, he, he fought at the Battle of Shrewsbury when he was 16 years old and took an arrow in the face yeah. and, and, yeah. and won that battle. But luck, <laughs> you know, you always need luck in any pitch battle. And this is why, of course, most medieval commanders avoided pitch battle because... Yeah. You know, you, you could have the superior force. You could do everything right on paper and and still uh, lose. And then it rains. And then it rains. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Rory, I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about the situation in France, the relationship between the French king, the king's brother, Louis of Orléans, and the Burgundians. The problem in France is, is that they have a king, Charles VI, who from the early 1390s has bouts of insanity. Yeah really tragic, but effectively he, he, he can't govern. And in, and in those periods where he can't govern, the Duke of Burgundy, his uncle, takes effective control of the government because A, he wants power, but he also embezzles huge amounts of money from the French crown. Probably about one sixth of the French revenue goes into the Burgundian coffers. When Charles VI has a sort of lucid moments, the Duke of Orléans takes control. And this sort of competition for power between Burgundy and Orléans just gets worse and worse and worse until eventually the Duke of Orléans is assassinated uh, at the command of the Duke of Burgundy. Yeah. And this effectively breaks <clears throat> down into a civil war. Now, the Duke of Burgundy is incredibly wealthy because in this period, Burgundy sort of effectively takes control of the Low Countries through various marriage alliances. Right. And the Low Countries are the center of trade in Europe. This is huge kind of textile manufacturing, these big cities like Ghent and Bruges and Antwerp. So the Duke of Burgundy becomes incredibly rich. Later in the 15th century, effectively fights a civil war against the throne of France to, to become its own kingdom. And, and eventually, you know, that, that doesn't pan out. And through all this, the English are looking at who they need to get on their side uh, in order to achieve what they want. And the Burgundians are, are doing essentially the same thing. And so the Burgundians ally themselves with Eng the English. And, and the reason why they ally themselves with the English is because the low countries, where their wealth comes from, are major textile manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And the textiles we're talking about, of course, on the whole is woolen textiles. And most of the wool is coming from England. Yeah. So the Burgundians have a very uh, strategic reason for seeking uh, an English alliance because they want to keep that trade running. Whereas the Orleanists, who are really concentrated in the, the southern half of France, have very few trade links with the English and really just want to control Aquitaine or Guienne or Gascony. There's the three mm. terms. And actually, if, if any of your listeners... There's, there's a confusing terminology between Aquitaine, Gascony, and Guienne. Three... Yeah, are you are you telling me that Aquitaine and Gascony are the same thing? They're basically all the same thing. Oh, I've, been on, I've been banging on about them through the series. <laughs> and, it's like, well, and, in Gascony, this was happening, but in Aquitaine, and now you tell me. Well, it's so that's just a different name. <laughs> that comes with some caveats. So 
The name Aquitaine comes from the old Roman province of Aquitania. You know, I've blithely waded into this and, and realised to tell the story of Henry V, you've also got to tell the story of France, and then you've got to go back to Charlemagne and the Franks and where all this came from. Yeah. It's bloody impossible. It is. And where it becomes problematic is that in treaties and in uh, the medieval sources themselves, they also use these terms interchangeably, even though historically they could potentially refer to different areas of land. Mm -hmm. So Aquitaine does not necessarily strictly refer to exactly the same boundaries as the Duchy of Guienne, for example. Right. Uh, talking about treaties, a lot of treaties were made. Did anyone ever stick to any of them? <laughs> well, uh, not really. 50-50. <laughs> it depends it's just how much play, It's stake. just playing for time, basically. Yeah, I mean, it? well, one of the, you know, one of the justifications Henry gives uh, to invade France in 1415 is that the ransom for King John II, who was captured at the Battle of Poitiers yeah. in, in 1356 by the Black Prince, and who was uh, ransomed uh, and led to this big treaty called the Treaty of Bretigny in 1360. Over a million écus of that ransom was was unpaid. It remained uh, unpaid. Mm -hmm. And that's about a billion pounds in today's money. Henry had an eye on history and he knew enough about kind of the legality of, of diplomacy and, and war to be able to appeal to these things and make use of them when they yeah. suited him. So he has a lot of success as uh, militarily in France, then makes the mistake of dying. How was he considered back home? Was he a, was he a decent domestic ruler? He was on the whole, yes. I mean, if you know, a few weeks ago I, we were talking about Edward II and just how Edward II was, was not interested in, in yeah. the details of government at all. Henry really is the opposite. Henry, you might think of as a professional ruler. You know, he, he really, he takes it seriously. He's obsessed with detail. He even apparently used to check the accounts of his own governmental departments. He understood the importance of ceremony and ritual and propaganda and showmanship. He championed the English language in government. So it's during Henry's reign that we actually see English become the official language of government rather than Anglo-Norman, which is effectively yeah. a, a dialect of, of French. And the kind of the legitimization of English as a written form, as an intellectual language. So he took administration very seriously. And so he was quite proactive in stamping out lollardy right. and stamping out heresy. But everything uh, points towards the fact that he did take ruling seriously. He was popular. He was militarily successful, which always uh, creates popularity in a domestic population. On the other hand, because of his military endeavors, he spent a lot of money. Mm. You know, we come back to this age old problem of you know war and money. And so he didn't leave the Exchequer in a particularly good position in terms of its finances. He had to sell off jewels and he had to sell off ships, which really you know, screwed over his son, Henry VI, because it meant that he had less personal income to draw on right. because his father had to, had to kind of give it away in order to pay his debts on his death. And so, you know, he's certainly no angel when it comes to the finances, 
but he was a professional ruler in terms of actually caring about it and, and trying to organize his rule mm. in a way that was sustainable. So Henry VI, his son, gets a lot of stick for being useless and losing everything his father had gained. But, but he actually inherited a pretty poor situation, didn't he? And Henry V didn't have as secure a hold on France as it might have seemed. Yes, I think that's right. So the Treaty of Troy in 1420, when he's made heir of France and when the Dauphin is declared as illegitimate by his mother, which must have you know, led to some pretty awkward family Christmases after. This. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, you know, you can see this as his kind of crowning triumph. But on the other hand, yes, you know, if we're thinking about Henry V's legacy, it's one of these great counterfactual questions. It's one of these great what ifs. Yes. You know, what if he had survived? Could he have united the kingdoms? I think he probably could have done it. But what would have happened in the long term is a big question mark because there was already unease in England about what would happen if he did unite the, the crowns. And effectively, the England would be the poorer little brother or little sister, mm. uh, which it was, you know, undoubtedly. Yeah, I guess nobody knew if the two crowns would be united or, or if they'd be kept separate and, and the king would only really care about France. The fact was that, in a way, France was essentially unconquerable. And, you know, one of the, the most effective things that the Dauphin did to uh, disable the English war effort was, was to pursue these Fabian tactics, was to basically to refuse to face the English mm. in, in pitch battle, to refuse to allow them to have a decisive military moment and instead just kind of led them through this long war, mm. which the English couldn't sustain in terms of men or treasure. And so, you know, you could say that Henry VI never really had the resources to do that. And Henry VI was slightly hampered by coming to the throne when he was only a few months old. I mean, what did Henry V put in place uh, to protect him, to, to help him? I mean, was he able to do anything for this son that he'd never actually met? He did. You know, he knew he was dying in the last you know, four months. He, he, he knew he was dying. And so and again, and this points towards his seriousness that he did draft a pretty well thought out will. And actually, he drafts two versions of that. Um, mm. And he appoints regents. He, he tells his brothers, you know, at all costs, preserve the alliance with Burgundy. You know, he realised that it was only with the Burgundian alliance that they could have any hope. Of, but pre of but presumably, France. with that alliance, it was useful for the Burgundians as long as the English were having a go at their enemy, the the King of France. But if the English had got too powerful, the Burgundians would probably just have turned on them as well, wouldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, you could argue that what the Duke of Burgundy really wanted was a weak monarchy. Mm. Because with a weak monarch, that meant the Duke effectively became fully autonomous and, and, and a monarch in all but name. And that's indeed what later Dukes in the 15th century pursued. They essentially pursued a, a kingdom. Mm. Um, so, yes. Uh, and of course, this is exactly what happens um, in, in, in 1435. You have the Treaty of Arras, where the Philip the Good of Burgundy basically betrays the English and uh, signs a peace alliance with the Armagnacs or, or the Orleanists. And that really spells the end of any English hopes in France, mm. because as soon as the, the French magnates have some sort of unity, the English simply don't have the wealth or the manpower to overcome that. It's, it's just impossible. Mm. And, you know, it seems that any, any English king that lived long enough eventually descended into 
being fairly weak and feeble and unstable. So in terms of his reputation, do you think that Henry was quite lucky to die young? You yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those sort of maxims of history. You have to know when to die, right? And, <laughs> and Henry died before any of the chickens could come home to roost, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and and his failures could become apparent. Mm. Uh, and I think that's true. You know, he, he died really at the peak of his military fame and at the peak of his successes. I mean, he, you know, he, he failed to become King of France literally by a few weeks. Yeah. You know, uh, Charles VI died uh, just, just over two months after him, I, I think. And so that's why he was never crowned King of France and why the French could contest the inheritance and, and things like this. You know, if he had lived longer, if he had been crowned King of France, I think there is an, an argument to say that he was a skillful enough general that he had enough charisma to bring people along with him. Also, what's quite interesting is that in northern France, there's actually very little evidence for anti-Henrician sort of fervor. You know, right. we, we, we can't think of France necessarily as a united nation state in the modern sense. You know, you had the Bretons, you had the Normans, you had the Pontians, you had the, the Hainauters, you had the, the Flemish. You, you know. So there's all these different regions who hate each other as much as they hate the English or the French. And, and that's certainly true of the Gascons. You know, the Gascons hate the Northern French. And mm. that would have counted in his favor as, as, as long as he could have been a, a king that could, through sheer charisma and skill, um, unite those. And if he'd managed to defeat the Dauphinists um, or kill the Dauphin, then he probably could have taken control of the kingdom and, and ruled it. If he died, you know, when he was 50, 60, 70, but regardless, I mean, Henry VI would have been useless, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so even if even yeah. if Henry had managed it, his son undoubtedly would have balled it up uh, pretty comprehensively. Yeah. yeah. Now, thank you very much again, Rory. It's great to have another chat with you and um, good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk again, Charlie. That was Rory Cox. Check out his book on historical justifications for violence and warfare, Origins of the Just War, published September 2023. And in our next episode, we'll be looking at exactly how King Henry VI did indeed balls everything up. His reign can only be described as a disaster. He seems to have inherited a streak of insanity from his grandfather, mad King Charles of France, which led to him losing his grip on the throne and the start of the enormously destructive Wars of the Roses. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023.